I'm going to put up on the screen Psalm 131, and we'll read through it together here. Psalmist says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This psalm is a psalm um, of a person declaring how deeply and completely satisfied they are in God alone. And that because they are so completely satisfied in God alone, um, then they are able to live pretty differently. But they're also talking about what it is that leads to that satisfaction, that profound satisfaction. The illustration being used here is like a child um, that has been weaned from its mother, so it's independent and yet still dependent quite a bit. And yet that child has been loved for and, and loved and cared for and is completely safe and secure and satisfied. When I read this psalm for the first time this week, the first you know, thought that, come to, that came to mind is, is, do I feel that way about God? Am I completely satisfied in God, first and foremost? What would it look like to be completely satisfied in God himself? I think that's one of the first things that we have to ask ourselves as we look at this psalm looking at our own lives, going, uh, what would it look like in my life to feel that profound sense of satisfaction in God alone, and then what would my life look like moving forward with that already a reality for me? What this psalmist is essentially saying here is they're talking about setting their gaze in the right place, And that if they do that, if we do that, they're they're tying a direct correlation between the satisfaction they experience in God and having chosen to look at the right things. Not looking too high, but looking exactly where it is that they're supposed to be looking. The psalmist says in the first verse that uh, that their heart is lifted up. It's not lifted up. And that their eyes are not raised too high. And you go, well, that's weird because God's up there, right? So why wouldn't their heart be lifted up? Why wouldn't their eyes be raised too high? The heart is the center of the being. It's the center of myself. My eyes, in in Scripture, my eyes have a lot of things that they do. Um, the, The eyes kind of signify a lot. But for the most part, what your eyes signify in Scripture is, is where you're aiming to go. Kind of your ambitions in life or your direction, right? Think about like being in a boat and um, wanting to go somewhere on that boat, you have to fix your eyes on a certain point, and you have to aim for that point. And if you stop looking at it, and you stop fixing your gaze on it, then you'll go somewhere else. This is what the psalmist is talking about when they talk about fixing their eyes um, not too high. What the psalmist is ultimately saying is they're saying your eyes determine your trajectory, and your heart sums up who you are at your very core in your being. And what this psalmist is saying is, first and foremost, my heart is not aimed too high, and my eyes are not aimed too high, which means I am not a person who is 
consumed with things that are too lofty, essentially above my pay grade. That there's some connection, says the psalmist, between having a low enough gaze and feeling satisfied. It sounds, might sound kind of weird, but what they're talking about is actually a thing that we're pretty familiar with. Um, and it's the concept of ambition. The psalmist is saying the key to my satisfaction in God is, of course, first and foremost, who God is and how good he is, but my ability to actually understand and see and experience the goodness of God, to be satisfied in him, is directly related to the ambitions that I have in my life. And my ambitions, said the psalmist, are not too high. My eyes are not set too high. My heart is not set at a point that's too high for me. When Scripture talks about something like ambition, it says some very clear things about it, and they're a pretty stark contrast to what the world in which we live today would say about something like ambition. You only read this word uh, in, in the New Testament a couple of times, and where you read it and how it's translated kind of tells us quite a bit about it. I'm going to read to you from James 3, where he says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. According to Scripture, ambition, and this is the most controversial thing I'm going to say all morning, ambition is not a good thing. According to God's word, it is a vice to be an ambitious person. Some of you are going, whoa, hang on a second, hang on a second. Historically speaking, it is a very recent development, this uh, movement that we've seen in which ambition has gone from being a vice of character to a virtue. But it has happened. Something that was historically considered a bad thing, a weakness, like deception or, uh, or arrogance and pride or gluttony you know, or, or lust or greed. Arrogance was in there with those things historically for so long and recently, it's actually become a positive thing. Now, one of the interesting things about where we see this played out is actually in the Bible itself is translated. Because in, in previous translations, in older translations, basically, um, this word here in James that, that says selfish ambition, it's erythea. And, and in older classic translations, the word was just translated ambition. Because Paul's obviously talking about something, James is obviously talking about something that is bad. He's talking about something that causes disunity and strife. And, and as the translators are trying to translate what, what James is saying into modern language, what they used to be able to do was just say ambition. So this word in order, older translations was translated simply ambition. But in modern translations, they've had to add another word to it in order to make it clear to us. They've had to call it selfish ambition. And the reason for that is because when we encounter the word ambition, <clears throat> sorry, I was camping and yelling all weekend. When we encounter the word ambition, we think of it as a good thing or maybe as a neutral thing. And so what translators have had to do is they've had to add the word selfish to make it clear to us that what James is talking about is not 
a good thing. And it is not a neutral thing. He's saying if you have this thing that exists within you, driving you and motivating you, then it's going to lead to these bad things I'm talking about that you experience in the church. And it turns out that James isn't the only one who thinks that way. Jesus himself, when describing what it means to be a disciple, would say this to his followers. Then, then Jesus told his disciples, we read in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What do we think Jesus means when he says these words? What do we think Jesus means when he says that we are to die to ourselves, carry our cross daily, and forfeit these things that he mentions? To take up our cross and follow him, to lose our life in order to save it. Oftentimes, we will translate what Jesus is saying to mean we have to learn how to behave better. We have to learn how to do better things. We have to learn how to be a better person. When I was a high schooler and I became a Christian at summer camp, the next day I remember weeping on a park bench because I was overwhelmed with the prospect that I was going to have to stop watching The Simpsons. It, it, was, it, was, it was the most devastating thought that had ever occurred to me, right? It was like, but I knew, I knew, somehow I knew that like what Jesus was talking about when he said this was you've got to stop watching The Simpsons and you've got to die to yourself. And many of us make the mistake of thinking that what Jesus is talking about here in death to ourself is just, is just not stop doing all the things that you enjoy doing that you know are bad and be a better person. But that's not what Jesus meant. We know that because that's all the Pharisees ever were focused on doing. And those were the people that were the greatest enemy of the gospel of Jesus. So he wasn't talking about living a better religious lifestyle. He wasn't talking about being more disciplined in how we behaved and being more impressive in our behavior and the things that we live. No, what Jesus is talking about here very clearly is the ambitions in your life that exist, that are in any way separate from who God is himself, are things that need to die in order for you to follow me. And what we saw with his disciples is the, the long and painful process of what that looks like. These guys who had given, who had chosen to follow Jesus for years of their lives still were having to work at it on a regular basis. We're still having to work at just letting go of the ambitions they had. And even to the point to where they saw that Jesus himself wasn't being glorified like they wanted him to be, he would have to tell people like Peter, he would have to say, no, I am going to experience this suffering. And he's like, no, Jesus, no way. It's never going to happen. Absolutely. And he ultimately says, like, get behind me, Satan. And Peter's like, yikes, that's not what you want Jesus is saying to you. That is, that is, that's how you know the conversation's going south. What do we think Jesus means when he says to give your life and to sacrifice yourself? What he's saying is that ultimately we are called to live differently than the world, and that comes to ambition. Here's my definition here for you, just to make it really clear. Ambition is the pursuit of goals motivated by my own self-interest and glory. Okay, so I set goals and I have things that I want to achieve and accomplish in my life. And, and if you're a person who's particularly ambitious or 
restless is another thing that we often associate with this in, in modern life, right? The idea of being restless is not really a bad thing. It's actually kind of a good thing because it means that you've got some life in you. It means you've got some fight in you. It means that you're going to maybe do some things that are bigger than all the other lazy people out there who don't want to do anything are going to do, right? I've got some ambition. I want to set my sights higher than maybe the average person. And I want to accomplish great things. And I want to know that I was able to accomplish great things at the time that God gave me on earth. God's a big God. He likes big things. He likes great things. So why wouldn't he want me to accomplish the greatest things that I could? Well, here's why. Because most of the time that we are coming up with these great things and we are pursuing these great things and we're being motivated towards these great things, if we were really honest with ourselves, really honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that they are motivated by our own self-interest and glory. I want to be bigger than I am now. I want to do more than I'm doing now. I want to be glorified. And the question is, what can I invest my life and work hard in so that I know that I'm better? In fact, the nature of this is rivalry. It is this idea that we live in a world with, what, like 7 billion people now? And uh, we live in a world with 7 billion people, and I don't want to be number 6 billion, 900,000, right? I don't want to be that person down there. I want to be up here. I just want to be up here. I don't need to be at the top. I just need to be up here, right? That's good for me. Then I know that my life was worth it. Then I know that my existence had some point to it. Then I know that I can look back and feel satisfied. This is why we are driven to these things. Ultimately, self-interest. I want to accomplish this thing. I want to see this thing happen in my life. And here's the thing about ambition that's so tricky. It is incredibly well rewarded in life. There is no question that if you are a person who pursues goals that lead to your own glory and your own self-interest, that you will be more likely to be successful than someone who doesn't. There is tr objective truth to that. I want to read you a description of a, of, of a person, a certain type of a leader that I was reading in Forbes magazine, because, you know, I get Forbes magazine. That's a pastor's read. No, I don't get Forbes magazine. I don't have any money, so what's the point of reading that, right? Well, I was reading this on the internet, you know, for free, of course, and, uh, and it, was, it, was, it was a description of a type of a leader in Forbes magazine. Here's what it said. <laughs> not that. No, not that. I'm, come on, guys. Come on now. Let's be serious here. Let's be serious. Okay. Here's what it said. Um, he is a charismatic leader who inspires people to follow him. I know you're like, wait, this reminds us of someone. Just hang in there. He is a charismatic leader who inspires people to follow him, a strategic thinker who can master the details, a tireless worker with incredible focus and problem-solving skills. He is well-liked by his employees, but is also able to make and execute unpopular decisions. Above all, he is an exceptional communicator who can convey a vision to any audience from Wall Street to the most junior employee. This definition uh, in Forbes magazine was part of an article they wrote where they were giving a definition and a description of a certain type of leader, and they called it the corporate psychopath. <laughs> this is what a psychopath looks like often in a corporate environment. Do you know that there, uh, on average, 1% of population is a psychopath? And a psychopath is a person who, um, who cannot empathize with the emotions and feelings of other people. 
and, um, and, is, and is more driven by self-interest, like sort of fiercely driven by self-interest because they're less inhibited by feeling uh, empathy towards how everyone else is doing and what they need to do and how they need to be and things like that, right? So on rough, roughly on average, 1% of human population is a psychopath, okay? So I don't know, 100 people in the room want to use a psychopath. One of us, I should say one of us is a psychopath, okay? Because it turns out 14% of those in corporate America are psychopaths, it says. The percentage is 14%. To give you something to compare it to, 15% uh, of all those incarcerated are psychopaths. And this article said 14%. I read another one that was written more recently in, psycho in Psychology Today in which they said the corporate level is 16%. So there you go. It is officially, you are more likely to encounter a psychopath on the highest levels of leadership in corporate America than you are in a jail, okay, in a prison, okay, is what this says. Now, why do I say that, right? Why talk about that? Why point that out? Because there is a direct connection between what makes someone this way and an ability to be successful and to achieve the goals that you have set and to let nothing get in your way or to let no one get in your way. If you read the biographies of some of the most successful people, you will find oftentimes that their personal lives weren't the best, that their relationships with the people around them weren't the best, but that because they were so wildly successful or because they were so wealthy, that people often overlooked these things. Being a person with great ambition is rewarded in this world. And that's one of the reasons that makes it so difficult for us to avoid seeing this as a good thing, but to actually see it the way that it is. At the end of the day, ambition in Scripture is spoken of as a weakness because it's a desire to accomplish something for your own glory and your own ends. I mean, you, we ask ourselves this question, you know, did God come to me and did he tell me to do this thing? Did God give me a sense that it is out of his goodness and his connection in my life that he's telling me to do this thing? Um, if not then can I say that this is something I'm doing for the glory of God? And I say that because I think we have a tendency to kind of do the things that we want and then to add spiritual language to those things and say, I'm sure that this is what God wants as well. Now, that's not to say, of course, that the, the Christian, the person who finds real satisfaction in God, is supposed to be a completely passive or lazy, or indifferent person who achieves nothing in life. No, absolutely not. But I just want to make it really clear as we look at this passage here in Psalms that historically speaking, this thing that we consider now in our culture to be a very wonderful character trait, ambition, is actually something that has historically been considered a vice because of what it did to community and how it played itself out in people's lives. I think that uh, when I say that it's something that we see as a good thing in our world and our culture today, I, I think that young people today are living under a tremendous pressure. As you become an adult and go out and kind of make a, world, make a life for yourself, 
a tremendous pressure to become this actualized version of yourself, this, 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 to become this great thing, to, to be set apart from everyone else to such a degree. And I don't think social media helps all that much. We all know it's not entirely accurate some of the time. We'll just say that, right? We all know that what we're seeing isn't exactly how real life goes for all these other people, but it makes it very difficult for us not to feel like we've got to do some pretty incredible things and we've got to become some pretty amazing people in order to matter at all. That would be the case if we didn't have God. You see, this is ultimately a pursuit that at its core says God is not where I find my satisfaction and God is not where I find my value and God did not make me to be an image bearer of him. Instead, I'm this kind of empty shell that needs to be filled up with something and so why not make it the things I can accomplish and the glory that I can attain for myself. Scripture has a response to this thing that we would call ambition, and in Scripture, the word that's used for a great desire, a thing that people pursue with passion, is aspiration. In the Bible, you hear again and again this word that we are to aspire to certain things. And I think one of the interesting things when you look at the difference between these two terms is they are really the difference between what it looks like to, in a godly way, pursue something with passion and drive, and what we talked about last week, perseverance, versus pursuing the wrong thing with passion and drive and perseverance. Last week, we talked a lot about what it means to bear under the load of life and to be able to continue moving forward in this long journey of life with perseverance rather than giving up. But the question, of course, becomes, what are we persevering towards? What are we working hard to do? Are we working hard just to work hard? Are we persevering just to be people who persevere? Or does it matter a lot where it is that our eyes are fixed. Our heart is aimed. According to the psalmist, it's very clear that these things are not aimed too high, but they're aimed in the right place as people who acknowledge that they've been created by the God of the universe. Aspiration is a pursuit of goals motivated by the interest of others and by the glory of God. Aspiration is saying uh, to aspire to something, uh, from what we read this word to mean in Scripture, is to, uh, to pr- all the examples of it in Scripture have to do with other people and have to do with the glory of God. And what it is to live and work hard in the direction of seeing those things come to fruition and come to pass. This is what we read about when we read from the psalmist about their deep level of satisfaction. This is a person who is not just um, uh, ambitious because their eyes are set on being God themselves. This is a person who knows what it is to find life in the Garden of Eden, rather than to build the Tower of Babel, as we read about further along in Genesis. The things that man can do when they rallied together and did something for their own glory were, no question, they were great things, but they were not things that were of God. They were things people did to replace God in their own lives, to be God themselves. We read about... um, uh, you know, you are to aspire to things. We, you read about it in the pastoral epistles when, when, uh, when Paul is giving advice to Timothy. He's talking to him about, um, about the role of an elder. And he's saying, this is a good thing to aspire to. So he's talking about maturity as a believer. He's saying, you should aspire. You should strongly desire that thing. 
The definition of the word in Scripture that we interpret as aspire, aspire is to eagerly desire to accomplish some goal or purpose, to strive to attain, to aspire to, to eagerly long for. In Hebrews chapter 11, where you read about like the hall of fame of faith, where they list off all these people in the Old Testament who had just like this insane amount of faith and did these incredible things out of faith. Um, one of the things that they describe in verse 16 is this. It says, but as it is, they desire... They aspire to, is that same word, a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So it says their desire and their aspiration is aimed on something God-centered and God-focused and bringing that kingdom into reality here on this earth. They aspire to see that happen because these were people who didn't get to see the thing that they were ultimately working towards. They trusted in faith that they would reach it one day in heaven. Philippians, we read it this way. Paul says, I press on, if you remember this from last week, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. What he's talking about here is his strong aspiration to what it is that God has called him to do and who it is that God has called him to be. The things that we aspire to often have more to do with who we are and how we impact the lives of others than they do with the things that we physically accomplish in this world. As a people who trust God and his power to do things, as a people who believe that it's the Holy Spirit that accomplishes things in our life more than our own efforts, then we are a people, we are to be a people who aspire and desire to see ourselves be transformed into something or to see other people be transformed into things that are honoring to God. You see, there are these things that we all are. And the problem in this world in which we live is a simple one. We all stop aspiring to the most important things, and we all focus on other things because they bring us glory, because they give us satisfaction that's temporary, because they're currently the things the world values more than maybe we valued or Scripture values. But at the end of the day, I aspire to be a good husband to my wife, and that aspiration is going to involve, it's going to be driving me in a lifelong pursuit. I aspire to be a good father to my children, which will not be easy and will require perseverance, but it's the thing that I aspire to. I aspire to love other people, even though I don't want to, and it's hard, and they're not always easy to love. Some are, a lot aren't. Some people tell me I'm not. I don't know if that's true. I feel like I'd be easy to love. I'm easy to love. But I have to aspire to that because it won't just happen on its own. I aspire to be a good neighbor. I aspire to be like the Good Samaritan who will help any person who is in need and who will love the person who should be their enemy and will want good for that person. That's not the way our world works. That's not the way we work with each other. But I aspire to that. I aspire to let God keep shaping me as I get older and more confident in myself. I aspire to be generous and kind, to develop the fruit of the Spirit like patience and kindness and goodness. 
I inspire to work hard and well at my job. I aspire to be an honest person who people can trust and who they know will do what they say they're going to do. I aspire to be somebody who builds community that's life-giving. I aspire to be somebody who brings people together and builds unity. I aspire to see people come to know the Lord Jesus and to experience eternal life in him. I aspire to see the kingdom of God grow and advance no matter what's going on in this world. These are aspirations that are built around the glory of God and the good of others. And when Jesus says that we are to lay down our lives, uh, the gospel transforms us, we are forgiven of our sins, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, given new life, and as a result of that, we now have the power to aspire to these things. And they are things that he longs to bring about in you and in me, in our lives, in our families, in our communities. But let me be clear with you here, if you hear anything this morning, if you see anything in this and you say, I want to be as satisfied as the person in this psalm. I want to be like a baby that just got weaned from its mother. Are you kidding me? I don't feel that satisfied ever. Here's how you do it. You stop getting distracted by all of the other things that the world will tell you you should be pursuing and obsessed with and caring about. And you will say, I am instead going to fix my gaze and my heart where they belong. Not up here. That's, that's God's to worry about. But here. I will aspire to the right things. And as a result of that, I will be satisfied. These are not easy things to do. Think for a moment about all the people who have made the greatest impact on your life. Think for a moment about the people who have made a great impact on your life. Did they impact your life because of how much they accomplished in the world? It's unlikely that that was why. Were these people who made tons of money and that's why they impacted your life? What I found is that the most generous people I know are often people who have less money than those who are, 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 are less generous. Were these people who had a huge following on social media and everybody loved them and everybody idolized them and everybody wanted to be their friend? Maybe you became the friend of one of those people. Did that person have a tremendous impact on your life? The people who have the greatest impact on our lives are those who are sacrificial and loving, those who exhibit the fruit of the spirits, and those who desire to see God's glory manifested, not their own. Could you even imagine if politicians were motivated by the aspiration to serve people well? Like, could you even imagine what it would be like if we lived in a world where politicians were like getting up in the morning going, gosh, how can I serve people the best? That's what I'm in this for. But I think we know what most politicians are in it for. I think it's that first thing we talked about called ambition, right? And I think maybe it feels sometimes, I don't know, maybe it may just be me, it feels sometimes like they're saying whatever they think we want to hear so that they can climb the next rung of the ladder in their own pursuit of ambition and glory in this world. Could you imagine if, like, your children didn't have to leave your home feeling crushed by the weight of the expectations of a world that says, you don't mean anything until you accomplish something amazing. You're not worthwhile until enough people like you and tell you that you're great. 
If you can't find a way to set yourself above everyone else, don't even bother trying. A satisfied and trusting child is content above all else. According to our world, contentment comes from having more, from gaining more, from earning more, from accomplishing more. That's why we want to do it. But according to Scripture, contentment really comes from finding satisfaction in the right things that bring the right contentment. And then ultimately, we can be the most useful to our world itself. But what this requires, like we talked about last week, is what we read about here in Philippians. It's perseverance. In order to aspire to these things, it's simple. There will be lots of distractions in life that will cause me to want to shift my focus, give up, and do something else. But instead, I must aspire, desire to continue forward in that direction that I started out in. That's why we have people around us to help remind us to do that, to help keep us on track with those things. That's why you see things like weddings and baptisms happen publicly so that other people can, can remind you when it gets hard to keep walking in that same difficult direction and road. It's not about finding something new. That won't fix the way you're feeling in life right now. It's about continuing on in perseverance, being a person, like we talked about last week, who has grit. There's a show that I started watching recently. I'm kind of late to the game on, on shows, um, and I don't like watching reality TV because, I don't know, sometimes I get the sense that it's not that real. Um, and uh, it may just be the ones I'm watching. And a bunch of people were telling me about this show uh, called Alone. And how many of you have ever seen Alone? Okay, yeah. Yeah, we like that. We like a show called Alone, right? That's how you get us right now in the post-COVID world, right? Uh, what's that, a show called Being Alone? I like that. I like Being Alone. Let's watch that, right? Um, this show is, I, I think it's pretty accurate. Like, I think what they're depicting is what's really happening, is what I'm saying. And so it's why it kind of sold me. They dropped 10 people off in the wilderness who were survival experts. I'll do it in quotes, survival experts. And uh, they give them 10, article, 10 items that they can choose. And they, whoever lasts the longest wins half a million dollars. That's it. So people get dropped off and they start to build like condos out of logs and they moss and mud. And they start to, you know, build boats and do all these different things. And, uh, and what's so interesting about this show is it's like a study in kind of people and the psychology of people and how people persevere. What you realize watching this, I won't ruin it for you, what you realize watching this show, though, is that what it ultimately takes to win is not being the person who had the skills to build the best shelter. In the end, a shelter isn't really, one shelter isn't seem all that different from the others. It isn't the person who was even the most experienced and trained survival expert. There are people who have degrees in prehistoric animal hide processing and people who have degrees in like outdoor adventure. I mean, you, yeah, they have degrees in this stuff, right? It doesn't even matter the degree that you have. What it ultimately comes down to, surprise, surprise, is nothing more than perseverance. It is people's ability to just get up the next day and do the same thing you did the day before and not lose hope and not get discouraged. That's it. That's what it takes. It takes the ability to get up day after day as the weight's falling off of people and they're having a harder time finding food and they're encountering, like, falling in holes literally and they're encountering all kinds of issues and complications and things that discourage them and they're getting bored out of their minds to just keep going one more day. 
That is ultimately what leads to success in something like this. I think that I watch this and I read these words of Paul and I think there is so much truth to the importance of our ability to simply get up tomorrow and try the best that we can once again to do the things that we aspire to do today. But to say, I'm going to keep doing it because that's what it is to to set my gaze, to set my heart on the right things and not too high or not too low. And I think the single biggest challenge for most people in persevering is not that we're all weak-willed and we give up. I think the single biggest challenge is that we let too many other things come in and distract us. There's always something else to focus on. There's always something new to take on. There's always a new hobby. There's always a new relationship. There's always a new perceived better community than the one that you're a part of. There's always a new uh, group of people to be around. There's always a new TV show to watch. There's obviously, there's always a new diet that you can try. There's always a new way that you can find to cope with what's going on. There's always a new thing that you could do better in exercising. But the truth is, we'll pick up these things, we'll drop these things eventually, and they will serve more to be distractions from the thing that we are to persevere and continue moving forward in. Perseverance is hard in the life of a Christian because ultimately it means allowing things to happen in our lives that aren't necessarily easy or enjoyable. But I think it's important that we do it. The journey of a Christian is an ongoing choice. It's a daily choice to submit myself to God's way and to submit myself to that alone. And we get distracted by so many different things. One of the things that we read about in Scripture is that one of the first things that ambition does is it drives people apart as I'm more motivated by my self-interest than your own interest. That's the way it works by nature. That's why we read in Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. There's a direct contradiction in these two different things. You can either consider others more significant than yourself, or you can consider yourself and maybe the goals you're pursuing, maybe the things you're trying to become and create more important than the needs of other people. We cannot have community that is real if we are motivated by these ambitions. We can't. Because in the end, the community, the people, and their needs will always end up having to be sacrificed in some way whenever they get in the way of the pursuit that we have. And we have to fight that. I think that the two greatest solutions, the two greatest assets, tools that God has given us to help us in this endeavor is first, well, they both happen right here, right now. The first is worship. Scripture is very clear that the single greatest way to battle an overinflated sense of yourself or or the things that you accomplish or your ambition, the single biggest, biggest way, easiest way of battling that is to worship God. That there is something about worship, the reminder of how big he is and how small I am, of the creation that he's, uh, that he's made, of the scale of all of this, the awe and majesty that comes, the holiness of God that I reflect on when I worship him, the more I regularly come and worship God and reflect on who he is and how big he is, the more that will put my own sense of self in just where it's supposed to be. 
But if I don't, probably my sense of self is going to get overinflated or it's going to become crushingly small and I'm going to feel insecure all the time because I don't see and have confidence in the God who is there to care for me and love me. So the most important thing that we can do is actually worship God, which, good news, we do it every week. We come here in community and we worship God together. The other tool that God gives us to help us in that which we aspire to, in the perseverance that we, that, that we try to continue forward in, is community. That's also something we do here. How nice, how great does that work out? It almost starts to make a lot of sense about why the church gathers regularly, why we gather every single week. Because we recognize that what we need is we need people around us who are going to encourage us to keep persevering in these things that seem really lame to the outside world. I'll just say it that way. That's gonna, they're going to seem too small. Or they're going to seem like, oh yeah, well, you know, you're married, so you're probably a good husband. So fine, you just focus on something else. You have kids, you have kids, they're alive, so good. You're doing that well, focus on something else, right? You, you know people, you might not know people, but, you know, let's not worry so much about what it means to love people and sacrifice ourselves for them and to serve them and care for them. To actually want people to start loving each other again one day, maybe, um, rather than just keep shouting at each other all the time and being against each other and experiencing disunity and division animosity, rivalry, hatred. You see, when we come together in community, we do this thing where we spur one another on to the things that actually matter the most in the end, the things that will actually change the lives of even other people, that will certainly affect the lives of those that are closest to us. But we cannot do it alone. We need that encouragement. We need that help. We need that reminder. And we also come together and we focus on the one who created all of us. And it gives us a sense of perspective on who we are and who God is. I read this quote from an author this week, a theologian, and he said this. He said, CNN will not be showing up at a church that is simply trusting God to do extraordinary things through his ordinary means of grace delivered by ordinary servants. But God will, week after week. We often focus so much on, even as churches, doing massive things, big things, impressive things, and thinking, Wouldn't that, isn't that what God wants? Doesn't he want that for us? But in the very same way, we can be so ambitious in that, thinking that the world standard of success should be our standard of success, when in reality, to truly be faithful as the body of Christ, to truly be faithful to one another and what God called us to do, we're probably not going to have a news crew showing up here talking about all the amazing things that we do, but what we are going to have is God himself showing up here, and the Holy Spirit, week after week after week, meeting us here as we meet one another and empowering us to do things that are far beyond anything that our own ambitions would have been able to accomplish. I want to be as satisfied as this psalmist is. I want to be able to to stop. And, and in a time like this, you know, when it's like summer and I'm finding myself, you know, on vacations and being out in nature and doing things with my family, you know, it's, it's in these moments that I ask myself, that I kind of evaluate and I go like, like, what are my, you know, ambitions? What are the things that are driving 
so much of what I'm doing and the choices I'm making? Where's my time going? Where's my money going? Where are these things going? And are they going towards the things that God has called me to aspire to that are good and of him? Or are they just going towards things that the world is telling me I should care about and I should be caught up in and I should be proving something with to other people? And I find in those moments where I can feel a little more satisfied that it's not that hard and that scary to give up some of those things of the world in order to truly be satisfied and setting my gaze where it is. Let's worship together.